Welcome to the Diversity in Air podcast. This podcast is the Association of American Medical College's Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhill and I'm the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. I'm really excited to bring this particular show to you on this episode of the podcast. I'm pleased to welcome several guests to the show to discuss the impact of physical disabilities and careers in veterinary medicine. Last year, I did a show on technical competencies for applicants to veterinary schools and kind of what that might mean for individuals with an interest in the profession but who have physical or neurocognitive limitations. It was a really great conversation about how not everyone will follow the same path, the same evolution of education and veterinary medical education specifically, and how it's delivered and access to opportunities for everyone. This season, we wanted to explore the issue in a bit more depth with actual professionals who are living with all kinds of different kinds of limitations and or disabilities. And this particular issue is really kind of a progressive one in thinking about how you may have started your career fully able-bodied and then maybe experience changes while others come to the profession with certain disabilities or limitations and have navigated the educational space with those challenges as well. So I'm really excited about the folks that have joined us for this particular show. I am joined by Drs. Neil Connell, Abby McElroy, and Dr. Rebecca, who we're going to maintain a bit of her privacy. We're just going to use first names. And actually, once we dive into the show, as our culture on the show is, everybody goes by a first name. And so with that, I want to take a few minutes to have my guests introduce themselves. If you could share a little bit about where you are, regions are fine, (laughs) and what you do professionally and the nature of your disability and or limitation would be really great. Rebecca, why don't we start with you? So my name is Rebecca. I first year, I graduated veterinary school in May. I'm not going to say which one, but I am a first year um, rotating intern in private practice on the East Coast. And my disability, I guess, is that I have a visual impairment. It's congenital. So I've always had it. So I had it before vet school and during vet school and as a professional. And basically it's just, it's a fun little defect in my retina that gives me vision that will never be correctable better than, you know, 2060. So what that means is that for a normal sighted person to see an object at 60 feet away, I would have to be 20 feet away to see it with the same clarity. And I also am like very, very severely colorblind. So those two things together make it really, make some aspects of veterinary medicine really challenging. So that's what I'm about. All right. Thank you. Abby. Hi, I'm Abby McElroy. I graduated from vet school at Tufts in 2017 and then did a master's at Michigan State. I currently work in Providence, Rhode Island at a human hospital. So it's actually Brown's Teaching Hospital. I work in a lab that studies how Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome impacts the brain and spinal cord in humans. And we do some translational research in animals, mostly horses, but we do a little bit with dogs. So I have a rare form of Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. I also have Chiari malformation, dysautonomia, severe bone fragility. I've had um, 17 fractures. I had surgery my third year of vet school for a tethered spinal cord. So I actually work for the woman who was previously my neurosurgeon. She offered me a job at one of my follow-up appointments. We've been kind of on this cool trajectory ever since of studying kind of the intersection of Ehlers-Danlos and humans and animals, which has been a really, really cool road and not where I uh, saw my career going when I started vet school. 
Very cool. We will definitely dive into that a little bit later about the kind of intersection with uh, professions. So, Neil. Hi. Yes, um, Neil Connell. I qualified um, 182 years ago. And when I say that to (laughs) the graduates nowadays, they just know it. It was 1982 from uh, Glasgow University. I'm actually from Glasgow, Scotland. At the moment, I'm in London, working part-time in London. Uh, my background, I was in mixed practice for two years and joined um, PDSA, so a small animal charity vet, for 25 years. I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2003, so I now have secondary progressive um, MS. So I, I took ill health retirement in 2010. So I, and now I do some ad hoc teaching and assessment at Glasgow Vet School. I was elected onto Royal College Council as the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons as the UK's veterinary regulator. And this year, for this year, I'm RCVS president. Congrats and welcome to all of you. This is a wonderful panel. I'm so glad that each of you kind of responded to the call. We put out a great call and had some wonderful people who were who are interested in having this conversation. So I want to just dive right in. And the first thing I want to ask a bit about is terminology and how do each of you feel kind of about the word disability, air quote, right? You know, there's always this kind of culture of trying to figure out what's the best way to describe individuals. Certainly, there's always some discourse on phrases that start with dis, because dis can be a precursor and and kind of conceived as very negative. But I kind of wanted to get a little bit of a sense for each of you on kind of how you just feel about that word and how you describe yourself and what words do you prefer? Okay, well, as, as far as the terminology is concerned, I'm, to be honest, I'm fairly relaxed about that. It's a description. So if someone says, do you have a disability? Are you disabled? I'll say yes. I'm an ambulatory wheelchair user and I use crutches. Um, and I'm, I have to say, I'm not too hung up on the terminology as long as people have been kind and they're not, they're not meaning anything by it. But so for me, it's not a big deal. I don't really think about terminology too much. It doesn't really matter as long as you're not being ableist. I don't care what you call it. And Abby? I guess it's not something that I think about too much on a daily basis. I have to say disability makes me a little uncomfortable. I guess to me it implies there are things that you're not able to do. Um, And for me, I think, you know, most things I I don't have a problem doing. I ride horses. I can go hiking and be sad about it later. (laughs) No, I think... I'm not too limited other than from a pain standpoint. So for me, I I prefer chronic illness, but it's not something that would offend me either if it was said. No, that's helpful. And I think that, that folks should should inquire if, if there's a doubt, just just ask, right? So Abby, I'm kind of curious, and, and this is for Abby and Rebecca, kind of you experienced these challenges kind of prior to and kind of going through veterinary school. What was that what were those experiences like? And Abby, I'll, I'll ask you first, and then Rebecca, you can chime in. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely a kid who had a lot of physical issues growing up. I fainted a lot. I was very low energy, and I had a lot of broken bones. But I also I rode horses extremely intensely, and a lot of those injuries were sort of written off as you know normal horse kid injuries. My health became extremely bad in college. And uh, I was diagnosed at that point and with Ehlers-Danlos and started to be diagnosed with some of the comorbidities that I now deal with. But I think it's hard when you're in college to really conceptualize at that age what it means to have 
kind of a lifelong chronic illness. So I think I knew it was something that I would deal with in vet school, but it was kind of hard to grasp the scope of what I was going to be dealing with. I think there was always sort of the thought in my head that it was going to get better in some way because, you know, you have the idea that you're going to be James Harriet and I wanted to do equine medicine. So, you know, I had the image in my mind of, of me doing equine and me wrestling with horses all day. And it was sort of hard to then rationalize that with this new reality of my physical limitations. So I'm not sure I really grasped going into vet school what those physical limitations were going to entail uh, clinic environment. And Abby, can you just tell listeners exactly what is Ehlers-Danlos? Yeah, so Ehlers-Danlos is a it's a collection of genetic connective tissue disorders. It's a collagen defect. So collagen is the most abundant protein in your body. So it basically causes extreme joint laxity. Uh, it causes your skin to be very hyperelastic and fragile. It causes issues with your brain and spinal cord, like Chiari malformation, uh, tethered cord, which I mentioned gastroparesis, dysautonomia. It's sort of a collection of symptoms that are connected by this collagen defect. So your blood vessels are floppy, your organs are floppy, you have chronic joint dislocations. All right. Rebecca, what was your experience like kind of leading up to and and through veterinary school? This is hard because I don't want to like sugarcoat it. It it was, vet school was, was pretty hard for me. The first three years were actually kind of fine because they were kind of just like, everything that school was before. It's the didactic portion for the first three years. So like just as a general FYI for anybody that has a disability and is thinking of applying to vet school, if you can get through K through through 12 and undergrad with a disability, you can pretty much get through your first three years and not not have too much of a problem. The real challenge is going to be clinical year because that's the last year of vet school when you're in the teaching hospital. And getting accommodations for that kind of setting is not something that you've ever experienced before. And it, it was kind of a struggle. So for me, when I went in, like I definitely knew that my vision was going to end up being a problem because before vet school, they make you shadow a whole bunch of vets. Like I knew that I would need some help. And so I started preparing for my clinical year as early as my freshman year. And so I called a meeting with like the curriculum team. There was a lot of like debate and research and careful thought that went into the accommodation plans for me for clinical year and getting them to agree to it at all was a really big triumph. But as many of us with disabilities know, there's a difference between getting your accommodations approved and actually having those accommodations put into practice. And so even though my school had a lot of time to get this stuff ready, and even though they were heavily involved in the creation of my plan, when the time came for clinics, they just really were not ready for it. And so there was a large part of my clinical year where I didn't have disability accommodations. And when I did have them, they weren't exactly what I thought they were going to be. They weren't what we agreed about. They weren't what we talked about. And so my performance in fourth year actually suffered a lot. Because when you're not really given the tools that you need to succeed and you have to spend hours every week arguing with the school administration instead of attending to your patients or reading up on your cases or making connections with faculty, that's going to hurt you not just as a student, but also as a future doctor. So the the things that made veterinary school so hard wasn't so much like overt ableism, although that definitely did exist. And I could tell you some real horror stories about it. But the real problem was more like a subtle systemic apathy lack of follow through on the part of the school administration because disability issues are just not on the forefront of anyone's agenda. So if a vet student with vision problems kind of starts flipping through the cracks, nobody really cares. So like, obviously I made it through and I'm here, but I don't want to like try to put a, like a rainbow mask on veterinary school and be like, you can do it if you just believe, because there are some, <laughs> there are some really big limitations and really big challenges that face that anyone with a you know disability is going to face if they try to go to vet school. And my experience, my last year was terrible and I wouldn't wish it on anybody. All right. We'll we'll follow up on that. But I want to ask Neil, 
about the challenges, which you described as your, your disability emerged kind of well into your career. How did you adapt? And, you know, what were some of those key decision points for you in those adaptations? Okay, I'd just like to say, I just want to acknowledge and res- give respect to Rebecca and Abby. I think their stories are uh, terrific and they've done really, really well. I always regard myself as lucky, obviously. And, you know, I was well into my career. In fact, because when I was uh, diagnosed in 2003, I think I was 43 at the time, and I'd had symptoms for a couple of years, which I ignored. And so, I, I, obviously, so chronic fatigue, tingling, all sorts of oddities. And it was only when I actually started going off my legs one weekend, mm. I thought I had a brain tumour, so I was hospitalised and put on a thousand milligrams of intravenous uh, prednisolone. And I thought that's interesting. So once I had a, a massive relapse that um, I never actually fully recovered from. So when I went, I went back to work, it was difficult. It was very challenging. The PDSC is a very, very busy environment. You're working with a team. Everybody's expected to pull together. But in actual fact, so it was challenging, very difficult. Adjustments were were certainly made because in the UK, the, the plan is you would, you would see an occupational health specialist who would make recommendations to your employer. And the concept is to try and make reasonable adjustments. So, you know, sort of rest periods or things that you might not be able to do. Sadly, I could no longer do emergency work. I did a lot of emergency work. I did a lot of surgery. Uh, I've got an orthopedic postgraduate qualification. I could no longer do that. So I had to, I became very restricted. But as I said, the the alterations and the the adjustments did help. And I was, I'm I'm proud to say I lasted another six years. I personally felt at the time I was exhausted. I felt a little bit broken at the time. I probably was becoming unsafe um, as a veteran at that point. You know, just there's this risk that you wanted to struggle on pattern recognition just get on with it so in actual fact at that point I had to uh, you know give up and, and retire from clinical practice so the adjustments did help me it was as helpful as it could be and it, it depends very much on the individual and, and their sure. circumstances. I'm curious about your transition and the role that you play you know you've played since your retirement from clinical practice and kind of that transition for you might have been motivated by the physical disability, but a lot of people kind of changed trajectory in their career. Can you talk a little bit about what that that actual transition was like and kind of trying to find sure. the next the next chapter for you? Because I think sure. that's something that is really a universal issue. Sure. Well, at that point, when I, as I said, I had to stop. Technically, I was actually facing a period for an actual fight. That was me finished. And, and I, I guess the plan was to sit in the house playing PlayStation for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I became very good at Call of Duty. But you know what? That doesn't really cut it as a career option. And I thought, you know, I really wanted to be part of the vetting profession. I love being a vet. So, and I, I continued to associate with vets. I went to local conferences. And actually, I did a couple of things that actually helped me at the time. I actually volunteered at a local human hospital. So I helped at the patient information centre and I realised that vet skills are transferable and it gave me confidence. And and also, funnily enough, I actually did a, a stand-up comedy course for people with chronic ill health problems. And doing a stand-up, stand-up comedy is, is a laugh because I can't actually stand. Uh, but, but you know what? It actually was, it was very empowering and it did help with confidence. And it was pure chance that someone actually... Um, um, got in touch with me and said, you fancy helping out at vet school doing a, 
a seminar on professionalism for our first years. I thought, okay, I'll give that a try. And I ended up doing a whole load of things for the vet school. Assessments, OSCEs, portfolio assessments, doing some teaching. Very part-time. I mean, any, any physical activity for me is challenging. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And then, as I said, I, I just considered, I thought, I'd heard um, the chief executive officer of the Royal College speak one evening about the changes that were taking place for the regulator. I thought, I'd like to get to be part of that. And I ended up being elected onto council. Now, so in actual fact, for me, that actually, now, this is the highlight of my profession, mm. some years after I thought it was all over. So to just read, you never know what's around the corner, and often it's quite good. So there are, of course, there's challenges. It's not easy. But I, I always think nothing worthwhile is particularly easy. But so I have to, I, I just have to keep repeating, I am lucky, my situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I use a wheelchair and I use the crutches and it is challenging, but I just am very grateful for the opportunities that come my way. That's pretty awesome. So, Rebecca, you know, I kind of gone through what you went through in your, your at school, kind of what's life like now that you're in residency? We, that, you know, residency is a whole nother ball game. And what is that like? Are you, what kinds of accommodations are you receiving now that kind of help you be successful? Well, I'm not a resident. I'm, I'm a first year intern. Um, oh, sorry. No, I'm flattered that you think I am a resident. Everyone else, is <laughs> you can call me a resident if you want. Um, but, so, like, right now I'm working in private practice. I've only been here, like, two months. I think that there is a lot of very important differences between an educational place and an actual job. So, like, in school, if I wasn't seeing what I was supposed to, the only person that really cared was me, right? The other text from the doctors, it didn't matter because I wasn't the doctor on the case. It doesn't matter. In private practice, if I'm not seeing what I'm supposed to, the whole hospital cares because that's a problem for you right. know, not just me. It's a problem for my patients and the rest of my medical team. So what I found actually surprisingly is that in private practice, people are a lot more helpful and a lot more willing to, you know. So like the what I needed in, in vet school was there were aspects of the physical exam that I just could not physically see by myself. And so I would ask somebody else around me to, you know, you know, tell me what they were seeing. That's something that actually can happen a lot more readily in private practice than it can in an academic setting when you're a student. I don't know. I've only been here two months. It's a little bit too soon to tell, but I think that, you know, it's going okay. But it sounds like you're getting some of that kind of surrounding support that you need. I mean, folks are really invested in your success. Yeah, which is a big difference between, you know, when you're a student versus when you're a doctor. So Abby, you ended up, you're you're now kind of working... not quite full circle, but it's pretty darn close, right? <laughs> yeah. So I manage her lab. It's really just me and then this pediatric neurosurgeon, but obviously she's very busy with surgery. So I do the research side of things and it's great. I mean, I think I, I can't think of an environment where I would be more supported or that would be easier from a health standpoint. I pretty much set my own schedule. If I'm not feeling well, Nobody blinks an eye if I need to leave or if I have an appointment. It's pretty astounding in terms of just what a great environment it is to work in. You know, fourth year in vet school, I definitely still was hoping that I would be going into equine. And I had a pretty rough experience in terms of, I think everybody had the best intentions for accommodations, but they didn't really pan out. And at that point, I was still recovering from spinal surgery you know, really the only accommodations I asked for were access to a chair in the OR and then not having to stand during rounds. 
and that really didn't happen. I think it's hard because I think when you're the person who's sick, you expect your issues to be on the forefront of every faculty member's mind. And, you know, realistically, that's not the case. Everybody has a million things on their mind and it's hard for everyone to remember in a round situation that they have a student who needs to sit. But it is frustrating when you're the student in that situation. And I think vet schools just have a lot of work to do in terms of accommodations. And I know that they are very hard to implement in a clinic environment because the situations that come up in clinics tend to be so unpredictable. But it was definitely a struggle and it became clear very quickly that working as an equine clinician was going to be a lot harder than I had anticipated. So I'm very glad that I found this career option because it has been a kind of a saving grace. I do do about 10 hours a week of relief work and small animal. So I kind of have a foot in the door for, for clinical work, which is nice. But I love what I do. And I love that I can feel like I'm directly helping the human and veterinary Ehlers-Danlos community. So that's been really nice. So I'm kind of curious about what all of you think about institutions having kind of technical standards that restrict admission for those with various kinds of disabilities. So like I said, we did a show on that for our listeners of this show. That would be episode 34, Technical Competencies and Essential Standards, back in your podcast feed. But I'm kind of curious about how did you disclose, what did you disclose? And even for you, Neil, kind of thinking back, you know, what do you think about how this this kind of conversation on well, if you can't do X, then maybe this isn't the place for you. Sure. Yes, yeah, so the thing is, there's in just thinking about it, and I'm thinking from an MS point of view, I mean, I've been aware of, and this is outside the vet and profession, I've been aware there's, there's often conversations about people actually whether they should disclose their illnesses is from an employment situation. And some people are actually kind of reluctant to disclose at the time, I have to say, I had no issue with that. I thought, honesty is the best policy. I would just say right out that I've been diagnosed with this. And the actual fact, because the situation is, if if anyone is actually concerned about letting other people know, the difficulty is if you keep it to yourself, then you, you, you can't really expect people to support you. So the, the good thing about uh, disclosing it is, is hopefully you will receive support and people understand what your issues are. Whereas in my case, it would have been quite obvious, I think, to be honest. They might have thought I'd come in and I hadn't said anything. I was drunk all the time or falling over or something. So it's a concern that people actually are concerned about revealing the vulnerability or weakness. For me, it was it was better just to get that right out in the open. And, and I, I got support because of it. Regarding um, the business with technical stands, obviously in the UK, it, but the difficulty, we, we've actually were restricted by the Insurgents Act, which was introduced in 1966, which is quite a long time ago. And obviously, so we look at the Code of Conduct and Fitness to Practice. So the conversation around disability and you know, fitness to practice, these are, these are actually conversations that were going to be taking place, and it will be issues that, for the future. Um, but it is, it is technically quite a difficult area. Abby? Yes, I just listened to your other podcast on technical standards, and I thought it was a great conversation with the panelists that you had. I think it's very hard for schools to come up with technical standards that are going to be kind of a catch-all. And I think there's always going to be exceptions to whatever technical standards they come up with. 
you know, in my case, I went to vet school at Tufts. That was the one school where I did disclose in the interview about my health. And obviously, it ended up being fine. I do remember at one other vet school interview, you actually had to sign a form that attested to the fact that you could meet all of their technical standards, which I remember at the time, um, just my heart racing because I thought, well, I'm sort of lying on this form and there was nobody to talk to beforehand and say, I do have these issues, you know, what, how could we work around this? It was just everyone got a copy of the form. You had to sign it and turn it in before your interview. So it very much seemed exclusionary at the time. So wait, they waited until you got there and yeah. they gave you the Yeah, form they passed it out to everyone you... before your interview. You had to sign it and like hand it back in. So, okay, member institutions, we need you to send those in, those documents to the investment of, of prospective students. Even at Tufts for here, I had faculty members tell me, like, never disclose your health issues in an interview. They said it's the same as if you're pregnant. Don't tell an employer either one. And I thought, oh, you know, I, I think honesty is the best policy in either of those cases. Because I know for me, like Neil was saying, when I'm having a bad day, it's very obvious. And I think, you know, I don't want to come off as lazy or having a bad attitude. And I think just it's better if people know what's going on than having to guess. But in terms of the technical standards, you know, I was reading an article about medical students who are paralyzed and the fact that I think it was about 10 or 15 years ago, there was a big concern about passing them through medical school because there was a concern about could they do CPR in an emergency But the fact is, with any of these technical standards, when are you the only person in the room, first of all, to perform these procedures? And second of all, there are so many specialties in vet med and in medicine that you can go into, whether it's research or psychiatry and human med, where you you don't necessarily need to be the person doing CPR or performing surgery on a dog. So I think there needs to be workarounds for various physical issues where you can get through school and not necessarily have to perform exactly the same standards as everyone else. Yeah, Rebecca? I didn't disclose my disability for vet school until after I was accepted. And then I chose which school to go to based on the reaction to that disclosure. You know, I'm originally from New Jersey, so we can apply to lots of different places because we don't have a vet school ourselves. But the hope is that we just apply everywhere and pray. And so I had a couple of options and I just kind of disclosed, you know, after at accepted students day after after being accepted. So there couldn't be discrimination the other way. And the school that I ended up going to had the most positive reaction. And that's how I chose where to go to vet school. For the internship, math practice is a little bit different because you don't, you know, once you get accepted somewhere, that's where you're going and you don't really get a say. And I did actually disclose my disability to every single place that I had an interview with because at that point, you're going to be working there no matter what. And if a place doesn't have a positive reaction or it doesn't seem like they're going to be helpful to you, that's not a place that, A, you don't want to work there and B, you physically can't work there. So you don't want to take that risk. And I, I would rather not match or not get you know my top dream job if it meant that it was going to be a work environment that I wouldn't be able to work in. Do I think that it cost me opportunities? Yeah, definitely. There are definitely places that I think would have been, would have accepted me if they didn't know that didn't because they knew. But you know what? The place that I ended up, I'm happy here. So it's really important. Yeah. And in terms of like the technical standards, I listened to your podcast too. I thought it was great. But there's this one like idea that you guys kept coming back to, which is like these technical standards exist to like protect veterinary students with disabilities from, you know, ultimately entering a career path where they would be unsuccessful. And the entire time looking at that discussion, I was like, well, that's like, that's paternalistic. That's really like, 
there are no, you know, guarantees in veterinary school for anybody, even if you're able-bodied, right? You know, not everyone that gets into vet school ends up graduating. What you're basically saying to disabled people is that like, you're less likely to succeed. So we're not even going to let you try, but like, we're less likely to succeed based on what exactly. There aren't exactly statistics about, you know, how disabled students do in vet school. You don't let us in often enough for, for you to know that. So you're basing this on like your own personal prejudice. And that's just not good science and a scientist, you should be embarrassed that that exists. Does that make sense? It was kind of like circular. Absolutely. No, it, it does. And I mean, I think that you're right. We have, you know, I think that in the last probably 10 years, we've seen a lot more diversity with respect to ability. And again, both in terms of physical ability, but also, you know, there's, at least in the U.S., there is, has really been a lot more diagnosis around neurocognitive difference, ADHD, ADD, autism spectrum, and, and all of these kinds of things, and which, you know, also have an impact on potentially learning and performance in certain situations. And, you know, I think that, that one of the portions of that kind of conversation, and, and we've also done a show previously on neurocognitive difference, is really kind of thinking about the educational space in a way that is what does universal access look like, not just in terms of, you know, some of the other diversity dimensions that we typically talk about around class and race and gender. I mean, I spend a lot of time um, with folks asking me, why are there so many women? And I'm like, a better question might be where, what, ha- or what is happening to men in, in K-12 programs? But really kind of what does universal access look like in terms of physical and neurocognitive difference and, and trying to make sure that, that folks have access to career paths that where they can make an amazing contribution, but also have a very fulfilled life the way that, you know, Neil was talking about over the course of his career and kind of what he's doing now and and the course that that took. And so, you know, I think that it's really about forcing all of us to think about the long game, right? And not just the the one or two or four years or, you know, even kind of post-training, but really kind of let's think about how to help people get the the kind of the opportunity to have the type of life that they they are in the pursuit of. One of the questions I'm I'm curious about from all of you is kind of at least Neil and Abby, you've kind of really talked about this and kind of the, the trajectory of your own careers, but I'm kind of curious for you as well, Rebecca, kind of where do you see opportunities in veterinary medicine for folks who have mobility and or vision disabilities or impairments? Like Abby, I had I had ideas of what my career was going to look like before I, I knew what the um, exact nature of my disability was and like how it was going to really affect me in clinics because you don't really know until you're there. Like I wanted to, right. I wanted to study like fish and like be an aquarium vet. That is not going to happen. I think that it's important for people with disabilities to know what their limits are and you know make realistic choices about where they're going. But I think that I agree that like you know going into a specialty is one good way to do it or finding like an, an aspect of you know, veterinary medicine that you can fit into is another good way to do it or doing research. There's just, there's, it's such a broad field that you can, you can find a job or a work environment that you'll be able to work in. It might not be the one that, you know, you think it's going to be, but it's going to work out probably. Neil? Yes, no, absolutely. I I, I agree with that. And the thing is, because, and I think it's recognized more by society now you know, the, the vet degree is transferable and there are so many opportunities for doing different things. And um, the fact that what I'm doing just now is is probably is quite important. But in actual fact, ironically, doesn't involve 
much physicality on my part, you know, so I can use wheelchair, I can use crutches. But there, there are there are so many diverse, different avenues you can take. And I think sometimes it's just being aware of it and altering your expectations. And, and, and sometimes luck plays a part too, you know, keeping an eye out for opportunities. But there, there are a lot of things out there. And in actual fact, the other thing that this, this worked for me is I have a, a small portfolio of things I'm doing. It's not even the one thing. It's these wee bits and pieces. And I find it really fulfilling. So it's, it's opportunity, it's awareness, and, and just not losing hope. And actually, just actually aligning yourself to something that you can actually do and do well and be challenged by it, but fulfilled by it. It probably isn't going to be easy, but it's going to be worthwhile. Yeah. And Abby? I don't think there's a lot of kind of general comments that you can make. I think it really depends on the person. I think there are people with visual and mobility impairments that could do large animal. I think there's a lot of people that can do small animal research. I think it is really variable by person. The important thing is, you know, to have goals and have the drive to do it. I um, I work with a lot of kids who have EDS and there's a lot of messaging that they get that says, you know, you'll never work, you'll never be able to do X, Y, Z, you'll never be able to go to college. And that's sort of my big thing recently is to say, you know, you're only really limited by yourself to some extent. You know, you just have to have a drive and a passion and you can make it pretty far if you have a passion to do something. And I think if vet med is your passion, you'll find a facet of it that works for you. That's great advice. And I think it's always important. I know that when I talk to students and not just veterinary students, but like even even my own my own daughter, that when we talk about, you know, we all have this kind of idea of like, okay, we're going to finish high school. We're going to go to college or university. We're going to go do this and this and this. And then I'm going to step into this career. And I'm like, well, typically you don't have a career until you kind of look in the rearview mirror after like five or 10 years, <laughs> you know. But the other thing is that there has to be some kind of flexibility because typically there's always going to be something, whether you're able-bodied or not, whatever your makeup is, that there's always going to be something that kind of comes along and, and causes, you know, a left turn, a right turn, a pivot. I know for myself that I never would have expected that I would be still in veterinary medicine, not a veterinarian like 20 years later, 23 years later. So you know, you just never know kind of where you're going to end up. So as we come to um, the end of our time together, I kind of want to know from each of you, and we'll start with Neil, what advice would you give to both kind of prospective students? Each of you have kind of touched on this a bit, kind of, you know, work hard and, and figure out where you want to go. Advice would you give to prospective students? Do professionals able-bodiedness is, is not promised to, to anyone. Honestly, all I can say is obviously don't lose hope. And you know, if you need support, seek support. If you need advice, get it and consider it. You don't always have to take the advice, but at least it, it's good to actually get other points of view. And and don't necessarily think you're going to to go this alone. But the, the other two have had given really great insights, and it's. You know, if it is your passion, it's something you want to do. Hopefully, in many cases, you will find a way. So, I, I think the idea is just not to lose hope and to, and if you need support, seek it. You know, so I, I, w- I would think it's as simple as that, really. Rebecca, I think my first bit of advice for somebody going into it, knowing that they already have a disability, is to pick your school very, very carefully. And then to be proactive and make a plan early because you're going to have problems in clinical year and you need to be ready for when that happens, um, not if. 
I guess the last thing that I would say is just make sure that you really like, you know, if, if this is your passion, then yes, by all means do it. And I would never want to discourage anyone from, you know, trying to do veterinary medicine. I think it's a really noble profession, but right now it's just, it's at least in my experience so far, the education hurdles that you have to get over are extreme and it's very unwelcoming and you need to put your, you know, your happiness and your well-being first. And going into vet school right now is not a great way to do it, at least in my experience. So if this is your passion and this is something that you really want to do, absolutely do it and, you know, seek help and, you know, hopefully we can be a resource to you. Don't kill yourself over this, I guess, is my other my other bit of advice. Absolutely. Last but um, certainly not least, Abby. I think in terms of students, my advice would be to find one faculty mentor that's going to be a really strong advocate for you, especially when you get to the clinic stage. I think that's really helpful from an accommodation standpoint. I think for me, being really open with my classmates was the best way to go just because the more open I was, the more kind of understanding they were, especially when I was asking them to maybe pick up a little bit of slack on clinics for me and work a little bit harder because they were having to help me do things. I think you know, like I was saying, I had a lot of tunnel vision about having to do equine and there being no other options. I do think if you have a disability, you're going to have to be a little bit flexible on your career trajectory. And I think kind of to echo what's been said, but be sure it's what you really want to do because especially if you have a chronic illness or disability, your debt load is going to be huge when you graduate. And if you think there's a chance that, you know, you're not going to be able to work, especially Soon after vet school, you do have to realize that you're going to have medical bills on top of an already enormous debt load, and that's just something to consider. It's, yeah. it's hard for any graduating vet student, but it's going to be even harder if you're someone who has the additional burden of a huge medical bill. That I mean, and that's real, and it's not something I really, frankly, had thought about as a part of this conversation. I spent a lot of time talking about student debt, but the combination of, of educational debt and potentially medical expenses is definitely, I mean, that's a, a real thing that I think that a lot of people are, are wrestling with. So one thing that I would definitely encourage folks to also check into is the mental health and well-being programs at the colleges. I mean, I think that that's something that we encourage every student to do, but also recognize that a lot of colleges also have a veterinary social worker. Those people are really great allies to kind of help you also navigate the system that is kind of the accommodation system and kind of understanding how that process works. In addition to, of course, the actual professionals at the disability and the Office of Disability Services at the schools. So definitely, you know, reach out, explore those schools, do that background work. That should be another part of your decision-making process. As our guests have also said, you know, be flexible. That may end up changing. Um, op- new opportunities present themselves where other doors may seem to be closing. There are other doors that might be opening to you. So any parting words to the great masses out there in the veterinary world? Well, I just want to say it's been a real pleasure talking to you guys. So re- really enjoyed it. I agree. I think it's nice. I don't get to talk to a lot of yeah. people. Oh, sorry. I, like, I don't get to talk to a lot of people that have physical limitations in the vet med world. There aren't very many. So it's, it's nice to like talk to people who have had like similar experiences. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I'm always willing to talk to pre-vet students. And also in case anyone's unaware, there is a Vets with Chronic Disease or Chronic Illness Facebook group. If anyone is interested in being added, they can always contact me. We've also in the UK got the Facebook group Veterinary Spoonholders as well. And one of the, one of the really uh, lovely things that that, that being uh, 
visible at an RCVS council, people with chronic ill health issues have actually got in touch with me. And I think sometimes it, it does help to actually realize you're not alone out there. I think that's really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we will add links to those groups as well in the show notes, as well as post them on the Facebook page so that folks can find you easily. So with that, I am delighted that we were able to have this discussion. I am so impressed with each of you as just as just individuals. And I'm so glad that you took time to have this conversation together and with me as well, because I think it's a really important conversation and it's an important part of the diversity and inclusion conversation that often, as Rebecca mentioned, we kind of give short shift to, right? We don't really spend as much time talking about ability issues. So I really thank you each for taking time out of your day and Neil taking time out of your evening, which it looks like it's nice and sunny out there. For a change. So with that, we will bring this episode of AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on air to a close. Again, thank you to um, each of my guests, Rebecca, Neil, and Abby. Thank you. Thank you. You can find the show on just about any podcast app, Apple, iTunes, or I guess iTunes doesn't exist anymore, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon, all of those good places. And of course, you can find regular information about diversity and inclusion in veterinary medicine and in higher ed in general on our Facebook page, AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. So with that, I will bid my guests adieu. Thank you so much again for all that you're doing for the profession. Thank you. Thank you.